Welcome to the Portugal Street Philosophy Podcast, the official podcast of the LSE Philosophy Society. I'm your host, Eric Chen. In each episode, we take an important philosophical question and explore our best current attempts to answer it. For this episode, our question is, what are the requirements of instrumental rationality? And our guide to the topic is Professor Johanna Tomo. Johanna Tomo is an associate professor of philosophy at the London School of Economics. She works broadly at the intersection of philosophy, economics, and public policy. She's published on practical rationality and decision theory, ethics and public policy, as well as economic methodology and the application of economic methods to philosophical problems. Much of her work is united by the goal of better understanding what morality and rationality require of us when we're facing uncertainty about the future. Thanks so much for joining us today, Professor Joanna Toma. Thanks a lot for having me. So the question we're exploring today is what are the requirements of instrumental rationality? To start us off, could you explain what uh, we take to mean by instrumental rationality? Uh, sure. So it's broadly speaking about taking appropriate means to your ends. So an end is basically something like a goal. Uh, so you might have the end of achieving your philosophy degree, and you might know that a necessary condition for um, getting your degree is to take a logic course at some point. And so taking the logic course is a necessary means for your end. And then it would seem to be um, instrumentally irrational not to take that means, or the instrumentally rational thing for you to do would be to take the logic course. So that's a very rough picture in general what instrumental rationality is about. Um, though there are um, two questions that are sometimes treated slightly differently in the philosophical literature about instrumental rationality. There's rationality in the sense of having coherent attitudes um, and in particular in the instrumental domain, there's um, the notion of means ends coherence, which uh, is that if you intend uh, an end, then you also ought to, uh, then it would be incoherent of you to uh, not intend the necessary means to your ends. So, um, uh, so if you intend to get your philosophy degree, it would seem to be incoherent not to also intend uh, to take the logic course. Uh, so here, the question of instrumental rationality is all about coherence of attitudes. And it's, it's actually one, it's important to note here that, um, that the, mean, the means has to be necessary in this case. It's not incoherent not to attend a merely sufficient means. So it wouldn't be incoherent for you not to um, intend to take a philosophy of economics course when that is just one of the options you can take in order to get your uh, philosophy degree. So on that picture, instrumental rationality is all about having coherent attitudes to means and ends. Um, the second broad question that people are interested in when they uh, speak of instrumental rationality is a question to do with what you have reason to do or what you ought to do. So those are questions of normativity. Um, and sometimes this is known under the broader label, not of rationality, of, but of practical reason. And instrumental reason in that sense then is about how our ends matter for what we have reason to do or for what we ought to do. So an instrumental reason is a reason to do something because it is a means to an end that you have. So you have a reason to take the logic course, an instrumental reason, if you have the end to get your philosophy degree. And it seems like you also have an instrumental reason to take the philosophy of economics course, if it's one of the things that you can do in order to complete your 
degree. And if you look at the balance of reasons, it might even be that taking the philosophy of economics course is what you ought to do. So here, instrumental rationality is to do with um, what you have reasons to do in particular, and a particular kind of reason, namely instrumental reason to do and what you ought to do, and not merely a matter of coherence of attitudes. Okay, that's very clear. So could you say a bit more about what you, so there you see there's, you say there's two projects. One is uh, primarily about the coherence of an agent's attitudes. The second is more about what an agent has reason to do or what they ought to do. Could you say a bit more about what you see as a relationship between these two projects as one subsume the other, or are they sort of overlapping, but uh, distinct areas of inquiry? So people often distinguish between these two de debates, but it seems like they're, all, they're connected. I mean, why would you be interested in discussing coherence of um, attitudes when you don't think that we ought to have coherent attitudes? So I think most people who discuss means ends coherence would also say there's a, um, there's a normative requirement to have coherent attitudes and then they would, um, then they would fall together. And personally, I'm more interested in questions of normativity. And so I'm interested in whether we have um, instrumental reasons to have coherent attitudes. Um, so they, they can be in principle distinguished because it's um, uh, there's conceptual space for a view whereby um, there are uh, their requirements of coherence, their rational requirements to have coherent attitudes, but we don't necessarily have reason to abide by them. Okay, um, that makes sense. And just one more clarifying question. So how do you envision the project of normative decision theory fitting within the two projects that you uh, just described? Right, so normative decision theory is often described as a theory of instrumental rationality. We get these kind of um, offhand remarks and introductions to normative decision theory that this is our um, standard theory of instrumental rationality. It captures the kind of reasoning involved uh, when we um, reason on the basis of our ends to means that we should take. So we, we get the statement quite a bit um, that it is a theory of instrumental rationality. But it's actually really difficult to connect it to the philosophical debates that we find um, on instrumental rationality that's not formal and um, that is not by decision theorists. And one, one actually really telling sign is that the, um, the really excellent Stanford Encyclopedia article on instrumental rationality actually brackets decision theory completely. So it mentions in the beginning, some people think decision theory is um, is a theory of instrumental rationality, but we won't talk about it here. There's a separate article on it. So we often get um, decision theory just bracketed by the classic philosophical debate. And at the same time, we get this kind of arrogance by decision theorists of not being interested in um, standard philosophical debates on decision theory. I think partly because they perceive the debate to be quite limited. So I think this is most obvious when you just think of the classical requirement of means ends coherence. So that says you ought to take, uh, or it, sorry, there's a requirement of coherence to if you intend the, um, the end, you should also intend the necessary means. Now that will only ever um, constrain you in cases where 
there is a necessary means. And a lot of the time, there are many different ways of achieving your ends and uh, none of the different means is necessary. Um, so that's quite limited. And at the very least, we can usually take a means slightly later. We don't have to take it now. Um, so it's limited in that sense. And more importantly, um, the whole debate in, or most of the debate in the philosophical literature on instrumental rationality completely brackets questions of uh, risk and uncertainty. And it's taken to be the strength of standard decision theory that it deals with risk and uncertainty. And so the, the kind of arrogance of the decision theorist is those debates are so limited, they don't apply to real world decision making. Um, but I think at the same time, they miss the opportunity to think really systematically about the normative foundations of decision theory and how we can even think of it as a theory of instrumental rationality, how the, the elements of standard decision theory map onto the standard terms of the debate on instrumental rationality. What are means and ends in the language of decision theory? And that's really not clear and a question I've been interested in in my research. Right. Um, so there is a traditional literature on instrumental rationality, and it's not exactly clear how it maps onto the more kind of uh, formal epistemology literature on, or yeah, well, the formal decision, normative decision theory literature. Uh, but one clear distinction is that the traditional literature tends to be in context of certainty, and um, decision theory can incorporate risk and uncertainty. Um, is that right? Yes, that's a difference. Um, and then the uh, just the standard terms differ. So we, we talk about ends and means in the standard of literature on instrumental rationality. And decision theory has as its basic elements, um, whether in the context of certainty, there are outcomes, which are, um, which are the states of affairs that can come, uh, that can come about as the um, consequence of your choices. And um, in the context of certainty, you are sure that if you take a particular action, a specific outcome will occur. And then you have preferences over those outcomes. And then there's a requirement to act in accordance with your preferences. And moreover, decision theory imposes certain consistency requirements on your preferences. And in the context of uncertainty, you also look at either lotteries over outcomes. So you have probability distributions over outcomes and those can also be an object of preference. Um, or you look at uncertain prospects where all you know is there are various different states of the world that may or may not come about and you can associate a particular outcome with each state of the world. And then you have preferences over those prospects. So the basic elements are preferences which may range over outcomes and lotteries or prospects in the concept of, uh, context of uncertainty. And it's not quite clear how in this picture where we find ends and means. And that would seem to be quite a crucial question if we want to think of a theory as a theory of, uh, of instrumental rationality. Right, okay, so that's slightly confusing then that since there are these two sort of very similar literatures running uh, alongside each other, but the terminology they use is slightly different. So I guess I want to dwell on this for a moment. So you mentioned that you mentioned that instrumental rationality is about um, adopting suitable means uh, to your ends. But could you uh, say a bit more about sort of what are the 
fundamental the fundamental ingredient. So presumably instrumental rationality is meant to apply to agents, but how precisely are we uh, modeling the agents and how are the how are the requirements meant to apply it? Like what are the, so what, how do we pick out the means and the ends of the agent so that we can even talk about what they're instrumentally um, required to do? Or what would it be instrumentally rational for them to do? Right, so we need the, the sort of the starting point is the agent's ends. And I understand the challenge to be when we want to think of normative decision theory as a theory of instrumental rationality. I, take the challenge to be to show that the requirements that are um, specified by the theory, so the requirement to have consistent preferences and to act in accordance with them, um, how um, they can be normative in a way that can be explained by appeal to reasons that flow from the agent's ends. So we have to be able to identify what the ends are and then somehow explain um, the normativity of decision theory um, in terms of um, how abiding by these requirements helps an agent achieve hands. So the first thing would be to identify um, what the agent's ends are. And I think the most helpful way when we uh, want to apply all of, all of this to normative decision theory um, to think of an agent's ends is to think of them as states of affairs that are, um, that are uh, picked out as the agent's ends by attitudes that the agent has. So say you want to make your partner happy for their birthday, um, that is an end you have, it's a state of affairs that um, you can bring about. And what makes this state of affairs different from other states of affairs you can bring about like, for instance, making them unhappy for their birthday. Uh, what makes making them happy different is what makes it your end is that you desire to bring it about or, um, or you have set your heart on bringing this about or you are committed to bringing this about. So you have some kind of positive attitude um, to it. And um, often we use the sort of the catch-all term of desire, um, but acknowledging that this might be an, an, uh, a catch-all term for various kinds of different pro-attitudes you might have towards the state of affairs. So there's a particular kind of attitude that picks out some state of affairs as your end. So you start from this attitude um, of, uh, uh, that picks out your ends, and then um, you think that this is the source of instrumental reasons that you might have. This is the the terms of the traditional philosophical debate. Um, and when we want to think about normative decision theory as a theory of instrumental rationality, the hope would be that we can justify the um, requirements within decision theory um, by appeal to the agent's ends. We can show that abiding by these requirements um, helps an agent um, serve her ends. Right, okay. So just to make sure I'm following along, this is currently in context of a project where we're trying to defend uh, normative decision theory as a theory of instrumental rationality. We're saying whatever normative decision theory requires of you, these are just, these are just the requirements of uh, instrumental rationality. Um, yeah, I guess we wouldn't need to say that it's uh, 
that it's a complete theory of instrumental rationality, that it, it expresses everything there's to be said about instrumental rationality. But um, basically the hope would be, and this is the project I'm interested in, is to show that um, standard decision theory can either by and large or completely be um, justified in terms of instrumental rationality alone. And it's um, maybe to give a bit more broader background to why I think this is an interesting or important question is um, that instrumental rationality or instrumental reason is the least controversial part of practical reason. Um, so I think pretty much everybody agrees that um, uh, pretty much everyone agrees that it's an important part of practical reason because um, it seems to be part of being a well-functioning agent to take means to your ends. Uh, when we engage in practical reasoning, a big part of it is we sort of spell out what we want to achieve and then we look at how we can achieve it. Um, and the controversy is really in uh, the literature on practical reason is mostly about whether there's more to practical reason than not. And there's one camp, the Humean camp, which thinks that instrumental rationality is all there is to practical rationality. And the broadly Kantian camp, which says there's actually more to it. There are also requirements of prudence, for instance, um, or morality. And um, but, but both camps agree that at least instrumental rationality is a is an important part of practical reason. And so looking back at decision theory, then it would be really nice if we can justify all of decision theory in terms of instrumental rationality alone, because that would make it um, quite uncontroversial because everyone agrees that instrumental rationality is an important component at least of um, practical reason. And this is roughly why I'm interested in it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So it's like taking the overlapping contentious area between the humans and the Kantians and just saying, let's figure this out uh, first, since we all agree this is a part of practical rationality. Um, so, but could you say a bit more about how we are mapping between the two? So you mentioned earlier that the fundamental, the fundamental objects that we're taking for dis normative decision theory are uh, outcomes in the case of certainty or prospects. Um, when it's the case of uncertainty and we have, and the agent has preferences over these um, prospects or outcomes. And so could you say a bit more about how this is related to the ends uh, that we're meant to pick out? Are we saying that the preferences, this preference ordering is encapsulates all the information about the agent's ends and that's how these two are connected or am I simplifying a bit? Um, yes, I mean, I think this would be the most straightforward way to try and do the mapping. And I think in so far as people have even explicitly addressed this question, I think this is usually how, um, how people would answer the question about the mapping. Um, but I think ultimately it, that's not going to be satisfactory. Um, so maybe one, one thing to, to put on the table first is the distinction between two kinds of questions you have to answer when you want to think of normative decision theory as a theory of instrumental rationality. You have to answer a question of interpretation or what we've just called a mapping. So which elements of decision theory are supposed to play the role of ends and desires and means and a question of justification, how we can 
justify the core requirements of decision theory um, as uh, requirements of instrumental rationality. And so what you just mentioned is one straightforward way in which we might answer the question of interpretation. We take preferences to be uh, playing the role of desires um, or of what we might call the standard of instrumental rationality, the attitude that picks out the ends. Um, so let's have preferences play that kind of role. Um, and so preferences uh, are binary relations over outcomes and then in the context of uncertainty, potentially also lotteries and prospects. And, um, and in the in the good case, they um, when they abide by the standard consistency requirements, they give us a ranking of the outcomes, for instance. And so we might think of that as a way of sort of privileging the highest ranked um, option as basically your end. And so maybe the preference is the thing that plays the role of desire and it picks out certain outcomes um, as your ends. And I guess one neat thing for justification is that that gives you a really good justification of why you ought to maximize with regard to your preferences. Um, so there are two broad kinds of requirements in decision theory. There's have consistent, uh, have consistent preferences. So for instance, that they form an ordering and act in accordance with your preferences. And if preferences are just the things that define your ends, then really quite straightforwardly, you can see why there would be an instrumental re requirement to um, maximize with regard to your preferences. That's just to, um, it seems like that's just what it means to take the means to your ends in that case. Um, but the reason why I think this ultimately won't do is that um, if you go that way, you, you'll have a very hard time justifying the consistency requirements instrumentally. Why should there be an, a requirement of instrumental rationality for me to have preferences that are consistent, that form an ordering in the first place, that, that's going to be really hard to show if you think that just preferences as they feature in the theory are um, the standard of instrumental rationality. Right. Um, okay, so there are these, just stepping back a bit to make sure I'm fully understanding. Um, so there are these two components when we try to uh, put forward uh, something as a theory of instrumental rationality. In this case, normative decision theory, we first have to interpret the components of the theory. So we like specify, okay, what thing, what part of this theory is picking out the means, the, the ends and what part is picking out the means. And once we have this, we can uh, try to justify it by showing why um, why it would be instrumentally rational to do this, since that would be uh, doing this would be uh, suitably um, picking the suitable means to your ends. Is, mm. is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's the thought. And um, that you, you have to answer both questions of interpretation or mapping and um, justification. And I think the first question of interpretation um, has been ignored too much in the literature. So there's a there's a literature on how to justify the requirements of standard normative decision theory. And we can we can look at um, an example of a kind of instrumentalist argument for a coherence requirement in a in a moment. But I think that literature has ignored the question of interpretation too much. And um, what I've what I've argued in some of my papers is 
um, that there's sometimes a um, kind of equivocation happening that people are um, sort of implicitly assuming different answers to the question of interpretation are sort of shifting um, their uh, view of what the, in particular of which attitude is picking out the agent's ends um, as they go along in the argument. So I think, um, uh, yeah, a general message for this is that it's really important to fix your interpretation first, to say first which role, uh, which part of your decision theory is meant to be playing the role of ends before you can then enter the discussion on whether the requirements of decision theory are, are, can be instrumentally justified. Okay, that makes sense. Um, is there a sort of orthodox view that we could set up and then try to argue against uh, in terms of how, you mentioned earlier that the simplest way we might do this kind of uh, mapping part, the interpretation is just to say that uh, the agent's preference uh, ordering uh, is picking out the ends of the agent and uh, we can try, and that's, that's mapping, and then we can try to justify the requirements uh, on this, uh, with this as the, as the end. Is this sort of the orthodox view, or, or is there an orthodoxy in this area? So I think it's orthodox in the sense that people usually assume it, um, but I think there's just very little kind of explicit defense of the view. Uh, so um, so not orthodox, there isn't an orthodox view in that sense, I think, just because the, the question hasn't been explicitly discussed um, enough. But in, in so far as people are <clears throat> making at least explicit remarks about it, it tends to be to think of preferences as the attitudes that are um, kind of fixing the agent's end. Right. And are there, so this is typically assumed, you mentioned there are two broad kinds of requirements that are typically imposed upon this preference with the normative decision theory. So there's this consistency requirement and there's also this class of requirements where you have to like act in accordance uh, with your preferences. Um, could you say a bit more about what precisely these kind of requirements look like? Is there just like a nice list that we could uh, go down and then we could try to um, see whether they're any good? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's easiest in the case of uh, certainty. Um, so there the requirement on your preferences is that they should be uh, well-ordered, uh, which means that they should be complete. So for any um, two outcomes, either you prefer one over the other um, or the other way around. So you have to have a preference between any two outcomes. And then a transitivity requirement which says that for any three outcomes, if you prefer the first to the second and the second to the third, that implies that you should prefer the um, first to the third. Um, and so these, what these then guarantee is that you can have a ranking of all of the different outcomes, that you can put them in order and the neat thing then is that you can have a very simple kind of representation of your preferences in terms of a utility function. So you can assign numerical values um, to all of these outcomes. And then you uh, picking the most preferred outcome is the same thing as picking the option that has the highest utility value. So you can give this nice representation. Um, but the requirement is basically to have preferences that form a ranking in this way. 
And what it rules out, for instance, is to have a cycle in your preferences. So to prefer, um, to prefer the first option to the second, the second to the third, but actually to prefer the third option to the first option, you can't have a cycle in your preferences. Right, and to be clear, the, if we just have the condition that um, the preference relation is well-ordered, the utility function we have doesn't contain information about how the, um, the options compared to each, the relative distance between the options is just an ordinal utility function at this point? Exactly, yeah. So any, um, any numbers that order the options in the same way would be fine in the context of, in the context of certainty. It's just an, an ordinal utility function, it only captures ordinal information. Right. Are, are there any uh, additional requirements that are typically um, assumed in the case of certainty, or is it just um, transitivity and what was the first one, completeness? And completeness, yeah. <clears throat> so those are the those are the standard ones, and I think like to get an example going of um, uh, of the kind of instrumentalist argument you get in favor of requirements of uh, standard decision theory. Those those will do nicely because the essentially the oldest one you get is about transitivity. Right, and. Do you think it makes sense to dwell on this for a moment, or should we also get the standard? Um, should we also get the standard uh, requirements in the case of uncertainty all on the table, and then we can um, perhaps pick one uh, to get into? Uh, I don't. I don't mind. I think the in terms of an example of an instrumentalist argument in favor of a requirement of decision theory, the one for transitivity is simpler to get your head around. Um, so for that, we don't need to talk about uncertainty, but obviously uncertainty is really interesting in its own right. So I'm, I'm happy to go either way. Okay, um, maybe just for the sake of completeness, uh, if you could get these, the standard sort of axioms or requirements when we're in this simple picture of the preference is the attitude that picks out the agents uh, ends. Um, if we could get the standard ones for uncertainty on the table as well, and then we could maybe come back and uh, focus on the axiom of transitivity and see what sort of instrumentalist arguments are uh, given in favor of it. Okay, so there are different um, decision theories in the context of risk and uncertainty. So risk, sometimes we... Uh, refer to the case where we can independently assign probabilities. And so uh, the objects of choice under risk are lotteries. So they are probability distributions over outcomes. And um, so if you've done some economics, this is the context in which uh, the von Neumann-Morgenstern representation theorem is used. And then, um, and this is often where we use uncertainty in the narrow term, uh, we get decision theories that don't assume probabilities, and there the op objects of preference would be uh, what I call um, prospects earlier. So we've got um, various different um, states of um, states of affairs that might uh, that might occur. You can assign outcomes to each of, each of these. Um, sorry, not states of affairs, states of the world. Um, and you can assign outcomes to each of these states of the world. 
and then we impose requirements on your preferences over such prospects and can derive both probabilities and the utility function if your preferences are consistent. And the crucial requirement in the context of uncertainty um, is something that um, uh, you might know as the sure thing principle in the case of Savage's decision theory, or sometimes it's known under the more general term of separability. And roughly the idea here is that you can divide each prospect into a sub-prospect, um, which is going to assign outcomes only to a subset of the states of the world that are part of a full prospect. Um, and the basic idea is that, and the, uh, the basic idea behind separability is that for agents with separable preferences, the sub-prospects that don't overlap are not complementary. You can basically um, evaluate them separately, independently, and they make independent contributions to how valuable you think a prospect is. To maybe illustrate this with an example, suppose that I'm deciding whether I should cycle to work today or I should take the train and it may or may not rain. And um, if separability holds, what I can do is I can look separately at those two different events because they're not overlapping, either it rains or it doesn't. So I can compare what it would be like to cycle. Uh, I can compare what it would be like to cycle or to take the train in the event that it rains. And then I can compare what it would be like to cycle or take the train in the event that it doesn't rain. And then I can, so I can evaluate those separately and then I can combine those two into my overall evaluation, um, but they make sort of separate contributions. So if I think in the event that it doesn't rain, I'm indifferent between cycling and taking the train. And in the event where it does rain, I prefer taking the train. Then according to separability or the sure thing principle, I ought to prefer taking the train in the case where I'm uncertain. Um, so uh, essentially it's a requirement of there not being complementarities between separate, uh, what happens in separate states of the world. You can independently assess those because either one occurs or the other occurs. Um, those should be independent from each other. And that's the core requirement of standard decision theories in the context of uncertainty. And there's a similar requirement in the context of risk. And what this guarantees is representability in terms of um, expected utility maximization. Um, so uh, we can represent an agent as maximizing the probability weighted sum of the utility of the different outcomes that um, your actions might lead to. Um, and, uh, and so this is, uh, um, so standard decision theory requires an, in the context of risk or uncertainty agents to abide by a separability requirement and therefore be representable as maximizing expected utility theory, uh, as maximizing expected utility. Okay, that, that's super clear. So in the case of risk, we get, we get like, this would be the independence axiom for Bonomi Morgenstern. And for the case of uncertainty, some version of separability, like the shorter thing principle. Mm -hmm. And 
the probabilities in the risk case are sort of externally given when you're represented as a expected utility maximizer. And for the case of uncertainty, they are the um, subjective probabilities of the agent. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So we can, um, we essentially get more coherence requirements on your attitudes to prospects. And um, by magic, we can then derive not only utility function as we do uh, in, in the case of risk, but also probability function. And the, the main difference is just whether we are presupposing um, taken to be independently given the probabilities or whether we're deriving it within our framework. Okay, great, that's very clear. Um, so then returning to the case of certainty, um, what, sort of, what sort of standard arguments are given for thinking that uh, either the requirement of completeness or transitivity is really a requirement of instrumental rationality. Right, so we get these instrumentalist arguments for coherence requirements in general that um, by and large proceed by saying that um, there can agents who violate these requirements can be put in dynamic choice situations so where they make a sequence of choices in which they will um, predictably end up badly off by their own lights. Um, so they, they will end up making choices if they act in accordance with their preferences that seem to be obviously instrumentally bad. Um, and so then from, from that, we draw the conclusion that no instrumentally rational agent should have those kinds of preferences. And in fact, there's a, a instrumental requirement to um, have preferences that abide by the, um, by the axioms of standard decision theory in order to avoid this kind of situation. Right, um, before we dive into one of these arguments is just to kind of canvas the whole landscape. Uh, is this the main, would you say that this is the main sort of argument that is used to justify these requirements as uh, requirements of instrumental rationality? Sort of, uh, if, you, if you don't follow this, you're kind of, you'll be qualitatively worse off or you could be put in some situation where you, right, you just do something that makes you clearly worse off. Is that the kind of main class of argument? Um, so if you are interested in this purely instrumentalist um, project, um, I'd say it's the main argument. In the, the one other possibility, I guess, would be um, to adopt what uh, sometimes called a, a substantive notion of utility. So the way that I've presented decision theory so far has taken as foundational preferences and requirements on those preferences and if agents abide by these requirements, they can be represented uh, as utility maximizing. We can give a utility representation to their preferences, but have taken the preferences to be foundational. Uh, sometimes people think that um, really the utility function is, um, is basic and that we have this utility function which expresses the degree to which um, uh, to which I desire things. Um, so, or maybe to give some historical background, the earliest versions of a substantive notion of utility would be sort of classic utilitarian ones where you think utility measures pleasure or happiness. 
but clearly that's of no use if you're interested in instrumental rationality because sometimes you desire things that are not your own happiness uh, or that are not pleasure. So for this to be a substantive notion of utility to feature as a, a part of a theory of instrumental rationality, the utility function would need to be a measure of the degree to which you desire um, something. And so if you think that the utility function is just like a cardinal measure of um, the degree to which you desire things, then you might think um, transitivity just sort of falls out of this. If you think like degree of desire is like a quantity and, um, and then obviously uh, um, uh, you would get you would get transitivity. If you can assign uh, this quantity to each of the options, um, you'll be able to order um, the options in terms of that quantity. And so you might think it just sort of falls out. But I'm, I'm skeptical of uh, the viability of this strategy, just because it doesn't seem obvious that there is such a quantity. I mean, certainly I don't have introspective access to such a unified um, kind of quantity um, and it's, uh, I mean, we'll look at, we'll look at one of the, um, one of the instrumentalist arguments in a moment, and it will start with, uh, with intransitive preferences that aren't obviously irrational. Um, and to the extent that it's not obviously irrational to have preferences that violate, um, the requirements of, uh, standard decision theory, um, I think that undermines just taking it as foundational that there is that there is this kind of unified um, quantity. Um, and it's even more controversial in the context of uncertainty, I think, because there, if you have the substantive notion of utility, essentially what you are um, what you are then uh, requiring of uh, in the context of risk is that agents should be, risk neutral with regard to that quantity. So if it's a cardinal measure of the degree to which you desire things, um, and uh, by definition, you can't be risk averse with regard to utility itself, you always have to maximize its expectation. You're assuming that agents should be risk neutral with regard to um, their ends, like in, in the risk neutral uh, in terms of goal satisfaction. And I think that's just not a, um, not an obviously plausible, that's not an obvious requirement of instrumental rationality. So I think for that reason, we need to start at the um, level of the axioms of decision theory um, formulated in terms of preferences and can't just assume that there's this, um, this quantity of, of desirability, which is why I prefer the strategy of the instrumentalist arguments, the um, money pump argument in particular in the case of transitivity. Right. So on this alternative view, the sort of primitive notion is not uh, preference and we are sort of constructing a utility function. This alternative view starts. Uh, the foundational thing is the utility function. We can just sort of uh, kind of introspect or something and then no like notice oh, we have these um, different amounts of desires for these different outcomes and the primitive notion is the utility function. Um, is, is that correct? And not, not the preference relation. Yeah. So um, 
And I guess the, the representation theorems kind of cut both ways. If we have, if we can start with this utility function, that also means we can assign agents preferences that will abide by the axioms. Um, but we don't, right. if we think utility is, is primitive, we don't necessarily need the representation theorems. And, um, and like early decision theory was, was like that. We started with a utility um, function. And I think these days, a lot of moral philosophers also often start with um, uh, when they apply, say, expected utility theory within, a, um, say, consequentialist moral framework, we just start with um, a utility function, which in that case would be measuring moral goodness. Um, and then we say we should um, maximize that or maximize the expectation of that. Um, and the utility function would be foundational. But I guess my worry is that when we speak of instrumental rationality, the utility function would kind of have to capture, um, uh, would have to capture, like have this, this one unitary, it would be this one unitary measure of, um, of all the kinds of attitudes that I might have uh, the, all the kinds of pro attitudes I might have with regard to various different kinds of outcomes that uh, it's actually really hard to unify. And it seems like um, a lot of what instrumental reasoning is actually is to try and come up with all things considered comparisons of different options. Whereas on the picture where we take utility to be foundational, we're just sort of starting with assuming that there's this one unified measure in terms of which we can um, well, not only order all outcomes, but also we can compare them in terms of the strength of our desire. Um, and, um, and I think that's just assuming too much to begin with. Right. So you're thinking this is too strong of a foundation, but if it, but, but your criticism would also apply to someone who uh, takes preference to be the primitive notion and then also uh, accepts all these um, requirements on it such that the agent can be represented as a expected uh, utility maximizer. Um, is that right? And maybe is and if you think that this is too restrictive in the case of starting from the substantive understanding of utility, you would think that we might have to get rid of some of the requirements of um, rationality that we're imposing. Uh, on the preference relation such that we get something that's more permissive than um, mm. expected utility theory. Is that right? Yeah, so on the on the alternative view where we take utility to be foundational, um, transitivity, for instance, just sort of drops out. Basically, we're, we're just um, assuming that um, as part of the framework. And I think that's assuming too much. Um, whereas the, the money pump argument, for instance, um, we, if we take that to be an important argument, we're starting from the notion of preference, um, that agents can assign preferences over different outcomes, but we are um, taking seriously the possibility that an agent might not have preferences that are transitive, and then we're providing them with, uh, with an argument why they should have uh, transitive preferences. We're not um, assuming it as part of the framework to begin with, but we are, the, the burden of proof kind of lies on us to show an agent with intransitive preferences why they should have transitive ones. So in that sense, we are, we're assuming less and we're taking the burden of proof to be higher. Um, 
but I mean, you already hinted that potentially assuming that agents um, have, uh, th that we can, taking preferences of outcomes to be foundational might actually already be um, assuming quite a lot. And I guess I'm sympathetic to that point of view as well, but at least the, the starting point as I sketched it before, of taking preferences to be foundational and then um, addressing this burden of proof of showing an agent that you should have coherent preferences. It's at least assuming slightly less than the picture where we take utility to be foundational. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So let's just discard this um, second picture for now and return to um, this view that um, you sketched where preferences are the foundational thing. And we're trying to uh, think about what constraints instrumental rationality places on this preference relation. And in this context, you say the main or like uh, a prominent style of argument is uh, if the agent's preference relation doesn't obey these requirements, then they can be placed in dynamic choice situations where they just end up, end up worse off um, to the money pump argument. Could you say a bit more about this? Could you sketch the argument in a bit more detail? Sure, yeah. So first we need, um, we need to make plausible an agent who has preferences that violate transitivity. Um, and in particular, an agent who has cyclical preferences. Um, cyclical preferences tend to be common in situations where either you're like, you, you have to weigh up lots of different factors or in situations where like the differences between options are hard to perceive. So maybe to take an example of the first kind, um, I um, so is it, trying to come up with a, an example that is kind of lockdown relevant. So, um, I mean, we're all looking forward to lockdown being over because it's not very fun and it's not relaxing anymore being at home all the time and miss my family and so on. So the yeah. choice that uh, I've been thinking a lot about and uh, that I'd like to use as an example here is what to do first once lockdown is over. Um, and so three things that you might do is go visit your family first or go and um, party with your friends first or go on a weekend trip to a nature reserve on your own uh, to get out. And the kinds of things that you care about, um, yeah, it should be fun and it should be relaxing, um, but you also don't want to disappoint your friends and family. Um, now, suppose that when you compare visiting your family and partying with friends, you think you prefer going to visit your family because um, you'll disappoint them. Uh, you'll, it'll lead to less disappointment uh, because your family would be more disappointed than your friends. Um, suppose it's also more relaxing because like partying with a lot of people, it's kind of um, you know, socially exhausting, maybe more so than hanging out with your family. Uh, and that kind of weighs up the added fun you'd have with your friends. When you compare going to the nature reserve to going to visit your family, you think going to the nature reserve is better because it's even more relaxing. Um, it's also more fun and it would be weighing up the disappointment you'd cause in your family. And um, if you compare partying with your friends and going to the nature reserve, you think actually partying with your friends is better because um, it's more fun um, you, it leads to less disappointment. You won't be disappointing your friends. 
and that weighs up the relaxation um, that you would have gotten from going to the nature reserve. And so now we have an agent with cyclical preferences. They prefer going to visit the family over partying with their friends. They prefer um, partying with their friends over um, going to the nature reserve and they prefer going to the nature reserve to um, partying, uh, to, to going to visit their family. Um, and so now the, and it, it doesn't seem uh, obviously irrational to have these preferences because for each of them, we could kind of, we could tell a story um, for each of them. Um, in this case, the, the structure was essentially that one of, you prefer the option that kind of scores better on two of the things you care about. Um, but in the end, you have a cycle. And so the burden of proof now is to show that um, that's nevertheless an irrational structure of preferences. And so the way um, that we do this is by, um, by showing that an agent with these preferences can be put in a situation where they make a sure loss. Um, so suppose that you have a travel agent who is uh, in charge of um, booking your first travel after lockdown, uh, which of these three options to go with. Um, I mean, think of it as say your flatmate, you have screen fatigue, you can't book anything anymore. And your flatmate says, yes, let me, let me book your trip for you. Um, and so you start by getting the option between going to visit your family and uh, partying with your friends. Um, the nature reserve is apparently fully booked. So you just choose between those two and you say, well, I'd rather go visit my family. Um, but then uh, your friend says, oh, actually, um, the friend weekend has been canceled because there's this feud between two of your friends. Um, but actually the nature reserve is now available. So now you're picking between the nature reserve and going to visit your family. Um, and you say, I'm gonna go to the nature reserve. I prefer that. Um, and, but then your, your travel agent uh, flatmate says, oh, uh, just got a call from your family. They'd rather see your brother first. So that's no longer on the table. Um, but your friends have made up. So now you can go party with your friends. Um, and you prefer that to going to the nature reserve. But the twist is now your flatmate says, oh, actually, now I'm going to take a 25 pound booking fee because um, I've been sitting here for a long time booking your travels. So if you if you'd like to change from the nature reserve to partying with your friends, you're going to have to pay me that. Um, but the assumption is if your preferences are strict, then a small cost like that will not clinch um, your decision. So you'd still prefer parting with your friends and paying that small cost. Or if, if that cost does clinch it, you can make it even smaller. Um, but the lesson is, of course, you could have just partied with your friends in the first place. Uh, like the very first option you had was family versus partying with your friends. So you could have partied with your friends without paying this cost. Um, but you've been taken through a cycle of choices that you sort of end up with an option that you could have had for free in the beginning, uh, paying some money. So it seems like um, utterly unnecessary. And assuming that having more money rather than less is one of the ends you have, it seems like you've frustrated uh, an end unnecessarily. Um, so base, the, roughly the structure of the argument then is, you give this choice situation, and if agents act in accordance with their preferences, they'll make some kind of sure loss. So the basic ingredients for the argument to work are 
you have to show convincingly that it is instrumentally irrational to be money pumped. And then you also have to say that to avoid the possibility of being money pumped, um, the only way of doing so is to adopt acyclical preferences, um, to adopt preferences that abide by the requirements. And then if we can show both of the, those two things, it seems like we've shown that it's instrumentally irrational to have uh, cyclical preferences. You're in fact instrumentally required to have, um, to have acyclical preferences. And there are sort of similar arguments, structurally similar arguments for all of the standard requirements of uh, decision theory, both under certainty and under uncertainty. Right. Um, okay. So that, that seems quite uh, intuitive. I guess maybe this might be a detour, but like it seems like one lesson might just be like you need to get a better flatmate if there's some if they're just gonna like money pump you uh, as your flatmate. That doesn't seem like a very nice thing for them to do. So, but I guess that relates to a question I had about what exactly is being claimed when they say that you're being money pumped. Is it just that? Uh, is it just that you are hypothetically susceptible to being money pumped or that, or is it strong that you will in fact, as a matter of like in the course of doing your actual thing, someone's actually gonna come up to you and, you know, um, run you along this loop and then just extract money out of you. Um, so what exactly does the money pump argument require uh, the short loss to be? Yeah, so it, um... It depends a bit on what you're what you're trying to show. I guess if we lived in a world where there are no money pumpers at all, uh, I think personally I'd say then the force of the argument is is basically um, is basically removed. I mean, one one thing we can say is like adopting um, it's it's kind of outside of your control a lot of the time whether you will find yourself in a situation like this. And then the proponent of money pump argument might say, well, the only, the only way that's to guarantee that you will not be money pumped that is in your own control is to adopt uh, cyclical preferences. Um, and you might even find people saying, even in a world where, as a matter of fact, you won't ever face such a situation that still shows it's a sort of part of being a well-functioning instrumental agent who, um, uh, that you should um, have cyclical preferences because you should do, um, you should be the kind of agent that kind of can get, guarantee that they won't be money pumped. Um, but personally, I think the a lot of the force would be removed if you if we were in a world where uh, you didn't have um, people who might potentially money pump uh, money pump you. Um, I mean, I guess market situations would create such, uh, if, if there is a possibility for um, exploiting um, other people's irrational preferences uh, in, in a kind of marketplace, it seems likely that those, those possibilities would actually be taken up, whereas in kind of personal relations, I guess, uh, less so. Um, so my sense is, uh, yeah, those... <laughs> Encountering money pumpers is rare, um, but it's not like it doesn't occur. And so either way, there might be some force 
um, there might be some force to the argument. Um, I mean, my, my problem with the argument is, is less to do with are there actually money pumpers out there and um, how many of them are there and what does that show for the argument? It's, it's more to do with the basic assumptions of um, uh, why, uh, why is it um, irrational to be money pumped? And like, what, how do we have to think of the agent's ends in order to be able to say that? Um, and also, to avoid being money pumped, am I really required to have uh, preferences that abide by the axioms? So those are at least two of the core things that I would need to be able to show if I wanted to make a money pump argument. And I think there are already problems with those um, quite apart from the uh, possibility or likelihood of, of encountering money pumpers in, in real life. Right, okay, maybe it makes sense to focus on those then. Also, maybe it's like a dangerous line of reasoning for you to kind of tie your view on the plausibility of the argument to the actual existence of money pumpers, then it, because this might just like incentivize a bunch of decision theorists like to come to your house and, um, you know, to try to money pump you to just make their position more tenable. Um, so I guess it makes sense to focus on uh, what you see as more fundamental issues with the argument. So yeah, you said there are these two premises, you have to show that it's irrational to be money pumped. And also that the only way to avoid getting in the situation is to have acyclical preferences. So where do you think is the, do you, so you think the argument doesn't work, am I right? Um, yes, yeah. So my, um, so my worry, the reason why I think it doesn't, um, it doesn't work is that um, the standard justifications for each of those assumptions seems to rely on different um, on different answers to the question of uh, interpretation, essentially, which of the elements in standard decision theory, uh, how the standards of decision theory can be kind of mapped onto the notion of an end, um, how the elements of decision theory um, relate to the notion of an end, um, and uh, whichever way you answer it, it seems like one of these two assumptions can't be given. Um, so I mentioned earlier that like one of the standard views on which element in decision theory kind of defines an agent's ends is that it is an agent's uh, preferences. So in, in the case that we looked at, the agent's preferences are cyclical. Um, and so how then are we supposed to show that uh, it's irrational to be money pumped? We'd somehow have to kind of show this in relation to the agent's cyclical preferences. And that seems, um, that seems really difficult. Um, so one thing, I mean, one thing that's often said is, well, uh, we violate kind of a requirement of maximization at least Kind of diachronically over the series of choices, we end up with an option to which another one is dispreferred. So we end up with, um, uh, say, we end up all the way at the end, we party with our friends, but we uh, pay 25 pounds extra. Um, another option would have been preferred to that, namely um, just partying with my friends without having paid 25 pounds, um, or also just uh, 
uh, spending time with my family is also preferred to that option. So is the problem just you, you fail to maximize um, where maximization is the requirement to uh, end up with an option to which nothing else is strictly preferred. Um, that would seem like an odd message to take from the money pump argument because it's like it's obvious from the beginning that you have if you have cyclical preferences you cannot maximize um, whatever you do something else is preferred to it. So it'd be strange to kind of concoct this whole um, setup just to show that you can't maximize. So it seems like that can't be or that that already suggests that that can't be the problem. Um, and I think just taking a step back to think about what instrumental um, rationality is supposed to be, it shows you that that can't be the right answer because what, we, um, what we're assuming now, if we think preferences are the standard of instrumental rationality, they define the agent's ends, is that what instrumental rationality now is about is serving those ends well and sort of talking about what kinds of reasons do I have that flow from my ends thus defined? Um, what ought I to do given those are my ends? So my ends are picked out by cyclical preferences. So these are just the preferences I'm supposed to serve. Uh, what does it mean to serve cyclical preferences well? Um, I can't be required to maximize because I can't maximize. That just can't be a requirement on me if I have cyclical preferences. And there actually right. are some decision rules that, uh, that apply to agents with cyclical preferences that we can appeal to um, to answer the question of what it means to serve cyclical preferences well. But what, it, what I can't be required to do is maximize if I have cyclical preferences, because that's just, uh, yeah, that's not a sensible instrumental requirement because I can't abide by it if I have cyclical preferences and cyclical preferences are just what my ends are um, under this preference-based picture. Right. And so, yeah, it's really hard to explain what is supposed to be instrumentally irrational about being money pumped if you have this kind of preference-based picture. Right. Uh, and you mentioned there are decision rules that are proposed for when you have cyclical preferences, but since you can't, there's no, there's no best one. This is they just run in a loop. But what sort of decision rules are there? It seems kind of just anything you pick might just be kind of arbitrary or something. Yeah, so one would be um, a rule called Schwartz's rule, for instance, and um, so I'll say the rule in a sec, but uh, that does have the consequence that if you just look at the set of uh, a single set of, pref uh, of options over which you have cyclical preferences, you're just permitted to go with any of them. Um, so Schwartz's rule um, says that an agent should choose a member of a subset of the available outcome such that no outcome outside of the subset is strictly preferred to any member of the subset and no proper subset of this subset fulfills condition one. So in our example, where you just have cyclical preferences over all of these options, you're permitted to pick any of them. What it would rule out is going with an option that is clearly worse than all of the um, all of the three options um, that you're choosing between. So, um, uh, what would be what would be clearly worse is just um, I don't know going on a work trip or something. Uh, you might think that's that's neither relaxing nor fun uh, nor um, 
what was the what was the third thing you cared about? No, well, it might be fulfilling expectations to some extent, but uh, say you think that all of the options, partying, seeing family, or going on a weekend trip to the nature reserve, all of those are strictly preferred to going on a work trip. So Schwartz's rule would say, don't go on a work trip, but amongst these three options over which you have cyclical preferences, you're just, you're permitted to go with any of them. And importantly, if you take um, the option of going to party with friends and paying 25 pounds for it, that's also included in the subset. So you're also permitted to go with that because that's also part of a, um, of a cycle of preferences. So Schwartz's rule, it seems to capture some notion of what it means to do well with regard to cyclical preferences, but it doesn't help because it doesn't tell us that being money pumped is irrational um, because you're actually permitted to end up with that option according to Schwartz's rule. Right, so if we take the view that uh, preferences over outcomes is the thing that picks out our ends and we have cyclical preferences, then it just can't be a requirement of instrumental rationality for, for me to maximize because that doesn't really make sense in context of uh, my cyclical preferences. So the money pump argument doesn't go through on this view. Yeah, it seems like we, we just can't explain what it is that's irrational about, about being money pumped. And right. And I think what this just shows is that that's the wrong view of, uh, of what is the standard of instrumental rationality or what's picking out our ends because it's so obviously intuitively bad to be money pumped. Right. Um, okay, I guess there's a lot more we could discuss on this topic. Um, we'll link to um, your paper on this issue, which is um, preference cycles and the requirements of instrumental rationality. Uh, for our listeners to check out uh, and see the details of the argument. Yeah. But I guess for now, we're running short on time. So I guess just have a concluding sort of question. Um, there's This area is really complicated, but do you have an all things considered view in light of uh, everything? What in your view sort of are the requirements of um, instrumental rationality or like what do you think is the correct conception of standard of instrumental rationality and once we fix that what does it actually look like is it something like expected utility theory rank dependent utility theory or is it just something something else entirely yeah so i think um the standard of instrumental rationality will have to be something more basic than preferences something underlying preferences something on the basis of which preferences are formed. And then we can explain, for instance, why it's irrational to make a sure loss or why it's irrational to be money pumped. Um, so something more fundamental would be just a desire to have more money, um, which, is, uh, which is just an aspect of an outcome. So it's a feature of an outcome to have money. So a desire to have more money, to be relaxed, to have fun, those are the kinds of things that define our ends and our preferences are formed on the basis of those and ending up with an option that um, that gives me less money and is no different from another option in all of the other respects I care about is obviously irrational in light of that. So I think that would have to be the correct view of the standard of instrumental rationality and those are attitudes that don't feature explicitly in decision theory. So the consequence of that is um, this, yeah, the standard of instrumental rationality is something that's not explicitly modeled, but we can appeal to this 
view of the standard of instrumental rationality as a basis of it for instrumentalist arguments, which I think have hope of going through at least in a conditional way, if we um, uh, if we think of preferences in a behavioral way, so it has to do with a reinterpretation of what preferences are. And essentially the picture that I'm defending is um, that standard decision theory is a theory about making consistent choices. And given that I, ha I have a certain desire to be um, consistent over time and the kinds of choices that I make, we can construct instrumentalist arguments that I should abide by the axioms of standard decision theory. So there can be a kind of conditional defense provided we're happy to think of standard decision theory as a theory of uh, consistent choice and of preferences in kind of behavioral terms. Okay, that's extremely interesting. Hopefully we'll have you on another time to maybe have you defend that view. But for now, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, uh, Johanna Zola. Yeah, thanks.